Well, good morning, Sherwood Oaks family. It's really good to see you here this morning. If you're worshiping with us online this morning, we're delighted that you've uh, tuned in to uh, share in this worship service. We are beginning a brand new series simply called God Owns Everything. So this week, it's live like God owns everything. Next week, serve like God owns everything as we do our global uh, mission partners weekend. And then the last one is worship like God owns everything. I suspect you have heard the old expression, possession is nine-tenths of the law, which basically says, if I've got my hands on it, I'm ahead of you in the battle of ownership. You know, we, we get kind of bent out of shape over who owns what at times in life, don't we? Uh, we get titles and deeds to things to show that we have ownership. Neighbors battle neighbors for where that property line is and who owns what. Municipalities uh, sometimes battle with homeowners to find out where the property lines are and what's in the city limits and who gets the tax money. And nations battle against nations for possession of other nations. And hundreds and thousands die in the process of those kinds of battles. Wouldn't this world be a far greater place if we understood one lasting principle? And that is that we don't own anything. God owns everything. Everything. And you say, really? Yeah, really? And what I want to do is give you some principles this morning that I hope will convince you that that is true, that God owns everything, okay? Here's the first principle. He created it all, so why should I worry? God created everything, so why should I worry? Now, you cannot read the scriptures and miss the fact that God is praised and honored as the creator of everything. And a result of that, I, you all know this, I, I love studying creation around us because everything you see in creation, if you look for it, points us to God. It just is an explosion of praise to God. Fall is one of my four favorite seasons of the year. And, and, and I really do mean that. I, I love every season in its own uniqueness. There's something to love about every season. But th there's something special about fall. I love the temperatures. I love the lower humidity. The harvest of apples. But especially the colors. I am struck with the fact that God was not obligated to make dying leaves beautiful. The hills and the hollows of this part of the country simply explode with color like an artist painting the hillsides with a palette of divine hues. How can you look at the maples and poplars, sycamores and dogwoods and not be amazed at God's creative genius? If God, if God can paint the world with a dying leaf, why should I worry about anything? Why should I worry about anything? The ruffed grouse builds a shallow nest on the ground and lines it with leaves and pine needles. That picture, by the way, is of a male uh, grouse. The ruff or the collar is where it gets its name. The hen is a little bit more subdued than that. But she lays 8 to 14 eggs in her nesting cycle. One egg every day. This is fascinating to me. During the incubation period, she instinctively knows which eggs are infertile and rolls them out of the nest. What's more, she does not start incubating the eggs until they are all laid so they'll all hatch at the same time some 24 days later. When the chicks hatch, they are 
odorless, thus undetectable to predators. And by, the, and by the end of the first 24 hours, these chicks are capable of running at high speeds across the ground. The mother grouse teaches them a warning cry that when sounded, the chicks scatter in all directions for safety. And the mother squawks, writhes as if in pain, acts as if her wing is broken to draw the attention of the predator away from the tiny chicks and to herself. And just as the predator is about ready to spring, she explodes from the floor of the forest and, and wings her way at low level, dodging the trees of the forest, flying 35 miles an hour. If some of you have ever hunted grouse, you know with what explosiveness they come out of the forest or the, or the grasslands. When the danger is gone. She returns, gives her all clear clucking sound, and the chicks run from wherever they've been motionless and hiding to find safety once again under her wings. The psalmist writes, because you are my helper, I will sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your strong hand holds me securely. Now, if God, if God can sustain the roughed grouse from the terrors of the forest, why should I worry? What do I have to worry about? Isaiah chapter 40, verse, verse 25 and following. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Now that it's going to get a little bit darker earlier in the evening, one of these clear nights, get away from the streetlights, another light pollution of your neighborhoods, and just get out and take time to gaze into the heavens. Mark your calendars, folks, for November the 14th. The full moon on that night will be a notable supermoon. The moon won't be this close to Earth again for another 18 years. In fact, the last time it looked this big was 1948. The moon. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that God put the moon in the right place at the right speed and built it the right size? Do you realize that if the moon was farther away or closer in, if it was larger or smaller, if it was spinning faster than it does, that, that the effect on the tides of, of the earth here would be catastrophic. There would be flooding on all of the continents. But it is at the right place. It has the right gravitational pull to affect the tides to sustain life in the seas. The moon that you just look at and sometimes dismiss is such a gift of God. And when we have a new moon and the sky is dark, that's a good time to see the stars. They shine brightest in the sky when the moon isn't competing for our attention. Look for the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper. Find the North Star and contemplate its importance in celestial navigation. The night sky is simply awesome. And it shouts the praise of its creator. And what we see doesn't even begin to tell the story. What we, we see with our, our eyes limits our understanding of the greatness and the grandeur of the created universe owned by God. So I want you to take a look at this video. It's just a brief video, but I hope it will just kind of give you a feel for how awesome our God is. Watch this.
Now just watch the progression of size, will you, as we go along. Here we are on earth. Now watch what happens. Canis Majoris is the largest known star in our galaxy. Now watch this. <laughs> That's us. That's 1,740,000,000 miles. And when you're thinking about the airline flight at 900 kilometers, that's actually 560 miles an hour. But it would take 1,100 years to circle it one time. Wow. A hundred billion galaxies. How great is our God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. I'm reminded of the old hymn, this is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. The birds their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white declare their maker's praise. If the God of the universe is my God, why should I worry about anything? God owns it all. Here's the second principle. He rules over it all. He'll provide for me. Paul writes in reference to Jesus Christ in Colossians chapter 1, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. Now catch this. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In other words, you take Jesus Christ out of the mix, and everything just falls apart. He's the glue that keeps us put together, and he is before all things. He is above all things, ruler of all, the highest authority. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father, catch this, of all, who is over all, 
and through all and in all. It is a powerful way of reminding us that God rules. He is the ultimate authority, king of kings, lord of lords. He is over all and through all and in all. And folks, that is an incredible comfort in these anxious times. Chicago is celebrating the Cubs' historic victory as winners of the World Series. Kind of makes me think we're in the closing chapters of the book of Revelation if, <laughs> if the Cubs have won the World Series. <laughs> But I'll tell you what Chicago is not celebrating, and that is in the first 10 months of this year, there have been 3,600 shooting victims resulting in 600 homicides, and there are still two more months left in 2016. At the current pace this year, 2016 will mark the most homicides in a year in Chicago in two decades. And, and I have been over the last several months, overwhelmed at the many anxious comments over the upcoming election. I don't think in my lifetime I have seen such polarization in our country between its ideologies. Our people in America are angry and they are fearful. No one knows what the outcome holds for the future. How are we gonna feel on Wednesday, November the 9th? And what will happen in America on January 20th when the new president is sworn in? Just this past week, the FBI released information on potential terrorist strikes and targets intended for this coming week right here in the United States. But we don't know where those are. Nothing was said about where they are. Everybody's on edge. Will it be in my state? Will it be in my city? Will it be in my own backyard somehow, some way? And I don't know about you, but I can get so easily bent out of shape and caught up in the fear and the anxiety because we have 24-hour breaking news in, you know, on, on the TV. You can get on the internet and, and read it. Sky is falling kind of pages on the internet. It, it's so easy to get caught up in everything that's going on. But I learned a long time ago, folks, that I cannot look to the media for hope I cannot put my trust in government for peace and daily provision. I cannot live my life in fear over what may happen as evil seems to triumph in this world. So when I wake up on November the 9th, I know this for certain. God is on his throne. God still rules and he will provide for us. God does not promise... God does not promise to prevent evil or right every wrong at the moment that it happens. God does not promise to intervene to protect the innocent in the crossfire of wicked choices. God has reassured us, however, that he is not absent, that he does see, and that he hurts for his world that has been so damaged by sin. And he does promise that if we will put him first, he will take care of us. He will provide for us through his mercy and his grace. So no matter what may happen in this coming week with potential terrorist attack and whatever victories they might achieve, no matter how the election turns out and no matter what tragic news may flash across the TV or the monitor screen, God is on his throne and rules and we are in his care and keeping. This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget 
that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Do not lose heart, folks. When it's darkest, the light shines brightest. Put him first, and he will provide. And I believe that the church will have greater opportunity to serve and change this world in the days ahead because when things are most hopeless, the message of hope shines brightest as well. Now, are we ever going to understand God's plan on a daily basis? I don't think so. We know the end of the plan. We know the end of the story. We know God has a victory in store. We just don't know how he's going to get us from here to the end of the story and the victory. We, we don't know what is going to unfold day by day. We can't even see beyond this moment. And here's the thing. If God told us his plan, we wouldn't understand it anyway. Do you remember the conversation between the prophet Habakkuk and the Lord? Habakkuk spouts off, I, I really like this prophet. I mean, Habakkuk doesn't hold anything back. He basically says as the book opens... Things are bad, God, and I don't see you doing a thing about it. Where are you? And what are you going to do? And, and so God answers Habakkuk in, in verse 5 of chapter 1. Look at the nations and watch, Habakkuk, and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. In other words, you won't understand it even if I tell you. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize the dwelling places, not their own. Let me tell you, folks, we haven't seen anything the likes of the Babylonians. They were ruthless people. Habakkuk is stunned. He is incredulous. Wait a minute, Lord. I get the fact that we deserve to be disciplined. We as your people of Judah have sinned and deserve your judgment. What I don't get is how you could use somebody even more despicable than us, like the Babylonians, to deliver your punishment for our sin. And God says, it's all right, Habakkuk. I've got a plan. I'm at work. You wouldn't understand what I'm up to even if I told you so. Trust me, Habakkuk. Trust me. I've got this. So in the days ahead, when you turn on the TV and everything seems like it's falling apart or it's a mess. Just remember, even if we knew what God was up to, we wouldn't understand it. And aren't you glad? Because listen, folks, if I could understand with this brain of mine what God was up to, it wouldn't be much of a plan. I'm here to tell you. And, and so the very fact that I couldn't understand, I couldn't fathom how God was going to use all these pieces and parts together is a good thing. And it gives me hope that the God of the ages, the God who spoke those billions of galaxies into orbit and into being has got a plan for our lives. He rules and he will provide for us. He is over all. He is through all. He is in all. And he'll take care of all of us. Here's the third principle. He shares it all. I am a manager of God's creation. Now, there are a couple ways to own something. You, you own it, first of all, by right of building it. You, you, you make it, you create it, you carve it, you put it together. You own it by right of creation. But there's a second way, and that is you purchase something. You purchase a piece of land, you get a deed. You purchase a car, you get a title. It shows that you are the owner of that. And so, how do we reconcile this business that God owns 
everything if I've got a title and a deed that shows I'm the owner of some things. Well, folks, long before we ever set foot upon this soil, God owned everything both by right of creation and by right of purchase. He designed the whole universe, including us. Then he created the entire universe, including us. And finally, he purchased us at the price of the cross because we had gotten away from him by our choice of sin. Check out these passages. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all of its people belong to him, for he laid the earth's foundations on the seas and built it on the ocean depths. Psalm 50. For all the animals of the forest are mine, and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountains, and all the animals of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and everything in it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you from whom you have, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now here's the beauty of all this. God owns it all, but he also shares it all. He said, it's mine, but you can be a manager for me. You can be my steward. This is a matter, a principle of stewardship. And I know some of you are thinking, oh, now here it comes. It's, it's all about giving, isn't it? Is that what you think? You're wrong. We for too long have used the words generous giving and stewardship as synonyms. They are not. They're, they're really not even close to being the same. When, when a steward or a manager takes over something, it is exactly what he does, is he manages. Stewardship is not about what we put in the offering plate. Stewardship is about what we don't put in the offering plate, what we keep for ourselves to use. Now, it's clear from Scripture that God is teaching us that he's the owner and whatever comes our way in life is really his, not ours. And we've all bungled this life by in, uh, that, that's been entrusted to us, this life that is a gift from God because we've, we've chosen sin over righteousness. We could have had a good relationship, a genuine relationship with the Lord, but we just keep bungling it through our own sin. And even though he created us, even though he has right to us, not, not just my body, but my mind, my emotions, my soul. By right of creation, God said, okay, you guys have messed this up, but I have a, 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 a plan. Part of the plan is redemption. And he sent his son to purchase us at the cross. Do you realize you are twice gods? One by right of creation, one by right of purchase. He owns us twice. And if that wasn't enough, God says, and you know what I'm going to do? Since everything is mine, I'm going to give it back to you so you can manage it for me. That's stewardship. One small segment of stewardship is figuring out what I need to give back to God. And, and if we follow the biblical pattern of giving back to God a tithe, a 10%, that still means we've got 90%. So the question of stewardship isn't so much what I give, it's what I keep. That's a hard principle for us to get. When we have titles and deeds issued to us, it's hard for us to realize we really don't own anything. It all belongs to God. I mean, it's hard for me to shift a lifetime of thinking. But when I begin to realize what's true, it changes the questions that we have to ask. 
God, how do you want me to spend your day today? God, how do you want me to use the talents you've loaned to me? God, how do you want me to raise your children in my care? God, what kind of a car do you want me to drive? What kind of a house do you want me to live in? And here's the tough one. It's no longer, Lord, how much do you want me to give back to you? It's, Lord, how much of your money should I be keeping for myself? The late Bishop Edwin Hughes once delivered a rousing sermon on God's ownership, and it offended one of the members of the congregation, a guy that was fairly well-to-do, big farmer, had lots of uh, 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 land, big estate. And so after the service was over, he invited Hughes to lunch one day. Hughes went. After lunch, they took a tour of the whole property and the elaborate gardens that this, this ranch farmer estate owner had. And when they ended the tour, the farmer said to the preacher, Now, are you going to tell me that all this land does not belong to me? Hughes smiled and responded, Ask me the same question again in a hundred years. So I'll ask you, that, that deed with your name on it, that title with your name on it, in a hundred years, whose name will be there? Who will own those things a hundred years from now? I got the answer. The answer is easy. God will still own them because he owns them now. He'll own them then. You won't have any idea who'll be using them at that point in time, but the ownership still belongs to God. This is my father's world. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. In all of his creation, he thunders. This is his world. We dare not forget that truth. And because it's his world, why, why should I worry? He's going to provide. And he will help me manage his creation with him. We're winners. A few weeks ago, I uh, ended up with some flight delays and complications on my way to a North American Christian Convention meeting planning session out of the state of Indiana. I, I, I was in Detroit. I knew I was going to be late because of the delays. The question was, am I going to be really late or am I going to be a little late? I was on standby. Uh, and you know how those kinds of things go when flights and everything get all messed up. Now, I got to tell you something. When things like that happen, I just, I just go into knots. I, I get antsy. I get frustrated. And here's part of the problem. I, I know what part of the problem is. I don't have any control in the situation. And that's really hard. You have no control. You're just waiting. And I'm not good at waiting, okay? So here I am in the Detroit airport hoping for a standby flight, not expecting to get that standby flight. Got a little bit of time. I pop into a Chinese restaurant for a lunch in the terminal. And after the lunch, they bring me a fortune cookie. I open the cookie, eat the cookie, okay? And then I look at the fortune. This is what it said. You will have much to give thanks for in life. I don't put a lot of stock in fortune cookies. You got to understand that, all right? Sometimes I don't even take the time to read them. Always eat them, just don't always take the time to, to read them. But that one, I read it twice, stuck it in my pocket, and then read it two or three times throughout the rest of the afternoon as I waited because I needed the reminder that I have much for which to be thankful. It was, it was, it was like this wake-up call. All of this is mine. Your life's mine. Your time's mine. Your schedule's mine. Your anxiety is mine. God's saying, I, I, you got a lot to be thankful for. Just, just wise up here. And, and I do. I, 
I have so much for which to give thanks. I, I have a, a, a wonderful family. I've got good friends. This is a great church family to be a part of and to serve with. I'm in reasonably good health. The, the list goes on and on. And I'm thinking, there are no English words for me to express to God my gratitude for everything he's done in my life. And I'm here to tell you, there are no English words in your language either to express how good God has been to all of us in this room this morning because you can start making a list for which to be thankful. And you've got a lot. I've got a lot. It was a reminder that he's in control. This is his world. And I need to live like God owns everything. By the way, I got the last seat on the standby. I was just a little late for my meeting. See, sometimes God even takes care of the little things. I'm not in control. God is. I'm not the owner. God is. I'm only the manager of the life that God has loaned to me. God owns the universe and everything in it. But here's the good news. He is the best landlord ever. Because he said, here, take it. Enjoy it. Use it. And I'll be glorified. Which means there's only one way to make that all happen. And that's through Jesus Christ. It is through him that we become stewards of God. It is through him that we have the hope we don't have to worry. It is through him that God will provide. Do you know him 